If you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. And I will read verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So if you spend any amount of time on social media or in hearing humor at all, you know that one of the most uh, hilarious things that exists in the world is the whole expectation versus reality, right? So you, you see a picture of the cake that you want to make for your kid's birthday party and you try to execute on it and it fails miserably and someone posts both pictures and it's really funny. And so we all have these experiences where the expectation set is not matched by the reality. And sometimes it's inverted. Sometimes we're not expecting much, and then the reality completely outstrips those expectations. I'll give you two examples from my life. So I used to work as a stockbroker with one of the brokerage houses that you probably are familiar with. And we trained and trained and studied and studied and studied. It was, I think, seven weeks of nothing but studying for licenses. And then we got the tests and took those tests, got licensed, and then we had another five to six weeks of training on the phones. And then by the time you're, you're, you're fully licensed, you're a broker, and you get on the floor, 90% of your calls are resetting people's passwords, Right? <laughs> It's a little bit odd because we're learning about bonds and futures and global markets and stuff. And then, hey, can you reset my password? 90% of my job until I got to different segments. So that was a situation where my expectation was something huge and big. And then it turned out to be, well, this isn't really what I thought it was. And then the opposite happens when maybe you go on vacation and all you can see of the place you're going are pictures. And then when you finally get there, you realize there's a reason people still come here, even though we have the best pictures of it possible. Like, the, did you, do you realize that cameras are better than eyes? Like, they, they, have, they have more sensibility to its ability to pick up light than your eyes do. But some, for some reason, when you stand on the precipice of the Grand Canyon, you, you just say, you, there's nothing like it. No picture no matter how accurate it is, can't encapsulate that experience. So we're all used to these expectations versus reality kind of uh, not matching 
so to speak. So let me ask you this. What do you think the Bible does? Which of those do you think the Bible does? Does it set a high expectation and then disappoint us? Or does it give us something small and little and bits and pieces and then finally gives us a full picture? It does neither. It perfectly sets expectation and then it perfectly fulfills those expectations. So my question to you is this. If you had read Hebrews 1, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 18, what would you expect? And would it be anything like those verses we just read? This is, these verses that we just read, is the big therefore. Just like in Romans when you get to chapter 12 and he says, Therefore... I implore you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's the big therefore. And he spends the rest of the book explaining what it means to give your life as a living sacrifice to God. There are several examples in the Bible of expectation being set and then something being said after where we, we I think, tend to feel like, well, that... That didn't really fulfill the expectation. You gave me all of that. You gave me all of those chapters, all of that questioning, all of that writing, and then you give me this? It's sort of like Ecclesiastes. If you've, if you've read Ecclesiastes, if you treasure that book, and then you finally get to the end, and it says, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Is that it? Is that really it? Did you, did you spend all that time and all that investigation working to, to, to just get to that? Is that it? The point is, yes. And all of that investigation, all of that building up should set our expectations of how, how much we should treasure the final result. Those two phrases, fear God and keep his commandments, are the whole duty of man. And that's the point that the uh, person who wrote Ecclesiastes, likely Solomon, is, is saying to us. This is how big of a deal these two things are. This is such a text. Verse 1, chapter 1, through chapter 10, 18, have been leading up to this point. These verses, verses 19 through 25, are one of the reasons I picked Hebrews to go through first. He has unfolded the theology of Christ as our great high priest. All of his imperatives, not many, but some of them, uh, all very significant. Consider Christ, take care, exhort one another, let us press on to maturity. All of those have been building up to this moment. He's been explaining the relationship between the two covenants. The first and the second. And all of it prepares us for this nutshell of exhortation. And the rest of the book, really, from, from uh, chapter 10, verse 26, on to the end of the book, is him unpacking and showing us what he means by these verses and why. Maybe you've gotten bored along the way. Or maybe you've not been paying attention. Or maybe you think that you've got all of what many consider to be the second or third most difficult book in the New Testament under your belt. Or maybe you think that all of this investigation that we've been talking about is just not for you. So we'll see. We'll see by how this lands on you. If you were hearing this letter for the first time, I'll ask it again. If you were hearing this letter for the first time, what would you expect the author to say after such a glorious Christology of Christ, our great high priest? 
Would it be what we just read? Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So right out of the gate, we see why everything he said up to this point is so important. Especially about Christ being the one who offered himself and who is also the high priest. He says, since, since we have this confidence... And he's just been spending 10 chapters making sure that you have that confidence. Is this you? Do you have such confidence? It's not something different than the essence of faith. It's not like a second level of faith. It is fully realized faith. Deeply settled faith. Many of you may think that being a Christian means praying a prayer and saying you believe in Jesus. But you lack, you don't have that deeply settled confidence that yes, he is who he says he is. I can trust him with my life and I will trust him with my life and live every day for him. And it's worth it. And even though the world says I'm crazy and that it's wasting my life to do so, I will because I have confidence in Jesus. That is faith. And that's what he's saying we can have because of all that he's told us. How do we get this confidence? He's not talking about heaven. One day when faith is sight and we see him, it's very easy to have confidence in that moment when all sin and all hindrances are removed and we see him face to face and we're transformed to be like him because we see him as he is. He's not talking about then, he's talking about now. Since we have confidence. What does this confidence do? It does so many things. We'll see in a moment some of the things that it does. But one thing that it does is that it draws near in prayer. This this phrase, draw near, means more than just your personal private worship or devotional time. But it at least means, bare minimum, that you as an individual actually draw near to God through prayer. So do you have this confidence to draw near? And what should answer that question for you is, is do I actually do something because of it? It's one thing to say, and I, I, I just recently bought, and this was before prices skyrocketed because of coronavirus, we bought a trampoline, right? So if you try to buy a trampoline now, they don't have them and they're really expensive because everyone's trying to buy one because uh, everyone's homebound. But before that all happened, we got a trampoline for a really discounted price and put it together. So it's one thing to have confidence in my ability to put together a trampoline. It's another thing to actually get on it and let my kids get on it and bounce around with them. You see what I mean? You can have confidence that you followed the instructions to a T, but if you're thinking, no, I don't know. I don't know if I did it right. I'm not going to get on there. I'm not going to let my kids get on there. It could be dangerous. That's not confidence. So our confidence in Christ, the, the, the effect in our heart is that, at least first and foremost, the cry of faith, Abba, Father, that we can approach that way. So do you do that? 
You may say you have this confidence, but where's the proof? Do you draw near? And let me say this to encourage those of you who might hear that and you're, you're soft-hearted and, and you're discouraged. Let me say this. Feebly drawing near. Drawing near with weakness and, and with many false starts and through frustrations is a million times better than fake, untested confidence. I would rather pastor and deal with and shepherd a small group of people who are weak in faith, but humbly and imperfectly actually drew near to God in need and in a needy, contrite heart than hundreds and thousands who felt strong and secure in their faith, but did not actively or humbly draw near. So what does this confidence sound like? I've already given you some ideas, hopefully, of what And this is an important question. We can say we have confidence and we can kind of define that as a feeling. Like, I feel sure in something, right? Like, I'm confident, fairly confident, that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. And if it doesn't, that means that Jesus has come back, right? So one of those two things is going to happen between now and tomorrow morning. So that feels settled in my heart. But because of that confidence, what do I do? I continue to live my life. I continue to try and live for Christ. So what does this kind of confidence in Jesus and in his ministry on our behalf, what does it sound like in our hearts? I will give you words from an old hymn. The hymn is called, Jesus Lives and So Shall I. Jesus lives and so shall I. Death, thy sting is gone forever. He who deigned for me to die lives the bands of death to sever. He shall raise me from the dust. Jesus is my hope and trust. Jesus lives and reigns supreme and his kingdom still remaining. I shall also be with him ever living, ever reigning. God has promised, be it must. Jesus is my hope and trust. That's what it sounds like to have this settled confidence in the Lord. And my question to you is, is this how you view your Christian life? Is the pursuit of this the way you see your involvement in your church body? I wonder. Verse 20. By the new and living way that he opened for us, Through the curtain, that is through his flesh. The reason we can have this confidence is the work of Christ himself on the cross. Let me say that again. The reason we can have this confidence is in the work of Christ himself on the cross. How did he open this way? By dying in our place for our sins. How is the curtain his flesh? So the curtain separated the Holy of Holies from the people and even the priest, except for one day a year. So Christ's body is is presented in this image as a new curtain that has been torn asunder so that the people can now approach God. And this is a new living way. It's not through the death of animals. Christ lives even though he died. And so we approach him on the base of a living sacrifice and we follow his example. So all of this matters to give us this confidence. This is why he's speaking this way and why he's spent 10 chapters almost explaining what it is Christ has done for you so that you will have this deep-seated confidence. Confidence. 
What you need, what I need, is confidence to draw near. Whatever the draw near means. We'll get to that in a little bit. We'll we'll see it in a few verses. But you need this confidence. And maybe it's just me, but this seems what we're really lacking. This seems to be what we're really lacking. He's going to call this in a second the full assurance of faith. This boldness, this sureness, this rock-solid, basic confidence that Jesus lives and so shall I. The same resolve that gives our brothers and sisters overseas the boldness to pray for the forgiveness of those who torture them while they're putting them to death. But do we really need this confidence? So hopefully we all understand the basic premise of the gospel. Especially if you're an adult in here, you understand the basic claims of Christ. But why do we need this deep-seated confidence in ourselves? I find that at the bottom of every problem, the more I talk to people, the more I counsel people, the more I talk to non-believers, appealing to them to understand the gospel, that whether believers or non-believers, what is at the bottom, behind the bottom of our problem is that we are either denying or not looking at closely enough an immediate implication of the basic facts of the gospel. It's not some high and mighty version of spirituality or, or next level understanding that comes. It's that we just, we, we haven't got it yet. Like forgiveness that Christ, that God in Christ forgives you. Have you really embraced that at the deepest level? There is some part of the gospel or its immediate implications that we reject or won't look at. So listen very closely. And if it feels too personal and abrasive every week, I'm sorry. But what I'm trying to do is to take my words and the words of the Bible and use them as hands on your face and turn your gaze to heaven to look at Christ and to see Him and to understand what He has done for you. And away from whatever else you're looking at, and whatever else it is that you're being anxious about, and direct your gaze heavenward so that you can walk in this full assurance of faith and obedience to Him with great joy. This is the job of the preacher. Is what I'm trying to do every Sunday. And I would rather die and miss out on my kids growing up and being a grandparent than to fall into the fear of man and stop doing that Moving up your face to direct your gaze to heaven. But you may ask me a question. What if I see this? What if I see the glory of Christ? I see him seated there. I understand that. And if I'm honest with myself, I still don't have this confidence. I want to offer a word of encouragement to you. That if that is you, you're in a far better situation than you might think. The kind of person I'm really worried about 
is thinking they have this confidence or not really feeling that they need it at all. So at least you know that you need it, you see what it is, and you're trying and you're going through the means of grace that God has given you, and you, you realize that there's a disconnect in your heart, and you're praying and you're crying out to the Lord. You're actually drawing near, even though you may lack confidence or all the confidence that you would want to draw near. That's better than just standing on the sidelines and not being interested to pursue this sight and deep-seated confidence of Christ. So back again to the beginning. Our confidence is built on the fact that Jesus has opened the way. He's the one who has done it. We didn't get a group of people together and petition heaven so that Christ would come and do this for for us. He didn't fulfill a request on our behalf. It was his plan, and he has opened this way. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We didn't have our act together. We were still in rebellion. We were still dead in our trespasses and sins, and he opened the way for us. And this is the reason he does not want you to add anything to the equation so that you will never lack confidence to draw near. Do you understand that? If you brought something to the table to qualify yourself to draw near, you would never draw near. You would never have that confidence. Christ opened the way. It's open and no one can shut it. And we don't bring our righteousness, our good deeds to qualify us to approach him, to draw near to him. He has opened the way. He did it all, he paid it all, he won it all, and he rules over all. But what if it's not enough? What if I know that Jesus is the one who opened the way and made it possible in the first place? And what if I still lack this full assurance of faith you're talking about? So there's a few things I want to say. First is I have pastoral concern. How can I help people have real, full assurance of faith when they don't know that they don't have it and they don't much mind to know one way or the other. And another concern is how can we together have this confidence? This is going to shift the theme of this whole message because I want you to look closely at these imperatives, these commands. Because we have this confidence because he has opened the door for us let us draw near let us hold fast let us consider how to stir one another up this is all for us together and if we lack confidence the way is not to go to your closet close the door with your bible and just pray for god to work that confidence in your heart it is us Confidence in Christ, the full assurance of faith, is a component of living the kind of life with one another that Christ commands. Is this how you view your Christian life? Is the pursuit of this the way you see your involvement with your church family? I wonder. In a minute, these Bible verses will show us, the author will show us, how, as a church body, we can work together to have this kind of confidence and to have it grounded in the right way. 
But before that, he has one more thing to say. Verse 21. And since we, again, there's the idea, we have a great priest over the house of God. Before we get to the steps, what we're supposed to do, the commands, which we love. We love do's and don'ts. Before we get there, he wants us to see one more thing. We have a great priest. Jesus does not set up a great plan of salvation and then step back and say, go do it. The gospel is not, Jesus has made all things new, get your act together, go do it. That's not the gospel. He constantly serves and ministers on your behalf before the throne of God. He's more active in the work of the kingdom and the gospel than any human in all of us combined. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. In, regarding the things you need most, your, your relationship with God, in the place that has the most significance before the throne of God, there Christ is now interceding for you. And this is the basis on which the author says in 725, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. There he is, over the whole house of God, ruling and interceding on your behalf. I know this might seem overly simplistic, or like I'm beating a dead horse because we've been talking about it for so long. But I really need you to see this and why the author sees this as so important before we can get to the do's and don'ts, before we can really get to a place where we can obey, we need to have a deep-seated confidence that Christ is our great priest. What do you deal with? Anxieties? Frustrations, fears, noxious pride, family strife, marital friction, problems with your children, anger, sorrow, weakness, guilt, shame, doubt, lack of joy, fear of death, Fear of loss? Questioning God's goodness? Is it just me? I think these are the things that we all deal with, one degree or another. And maybe you can just put on a face when you come to the house of the Lord and, and say, yes, I'm doing great, things are fine, and yet all of these things are going on in your heart, and, and it's very difficult to see past that facade, and some of you maybe have practiced it long enough so that it's impossible for anyone to penetrate behind that facade and see what's really going on. So I'm so grateful for those who are able or maybe unable to put a facade on because they're just so tired and can just be honest. But we say we have the good news. We say we have the good news for sinners like us. 
We say that God has, has given us life and joy, and yet all of these things are going on on the inside. So how do we resolve this? Who will deliver me from this body of death? If that's not the echo of your heart, like Paul in Romans 7, I don't know what category to put you in. So in this place of discouragement and the heaviness of the weight of sin and the curse, then the gravity, the weight, the significance, the joy of Christ interceding for you before the throne of the Father can change you. Because it's not going to fix everything immediately. Perfection only comes in glory. But while we wait and while we wrestle and put off the old man, Christ is there interceding for you. Father, I can't shake this sorrow or this feeling of desperation and depression. And I don't even know why I have it. Christ is there interceding for you. Father, I can't be reconciled somehow to my wife. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get my children to behave. Christ is interceding for you. And he always lives to make intercession for you. Do you see how powerful that is? That nothing has to be fixed right now. Christ is interceding for you. He will surely do it. And the Father's answers to the prayers of the Son are always yes. Is this how you view your Christian walk? Is the pursuit of this, that confidence in Christ, the way you see your involvement with your church body? I wonder. Therefore, therefore, he says, begins the whole section with therefore. Because of all this is the case, because of all that has been said and leading up to this point in Hebrews, because he, we have such a great high priest, because he has done what he has done, what should we now do? Be very careful how you answer that question. Many books and theories on the Christian life will give you answers that have nothing to do with the Bible at all. Let's let the Bible speak for itself. And it's nothing less than asking this. This is how significant this passage is. you got to be careful whenever a pastor comes to a passage like this. It could take a while, not just today. It's nothing less than asking this. Because of all that Christ has done, that we've just spent the majority of 10 chapters talking about and close to 60 sermons unpacking, what should we do? On the one hand, we've been mentioning parts of what we should do along the way. Every sermon has some piece of application. But let's see how the author himself, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us what we should do. There are three commands. Three commands that he gives us. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. And let us stir one another. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. And let us stir one another. Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This phrase, draw near, is very important. What do you think of when the author says, draw near? In the English language, we have special words, okay? 
So let's take the, the, the topic of, of choosing. So we have tons of word that, words that talk about choosing. I picked them, I chose them, I selected them. Right? We could go on and on. But what comes to your mind when I say elect? Election, right? So we've got three senses, very special senses of that word. Bride elect, the elect in the Bible, and general elections, which are coming up, right? Pray for our nation. So we have special words. And then, then we, uh, another example is words about getting from point A to point B. Drive, walk, go, move. But what if I said the word advance? What does that bring to your mind? Military, right? Advance. It carries a specific language. There are special words that carry special senses. And this phrase, draw near, is one of them. I've talked about it a little bit before. But it means priestly service. This is the same phrase used in the Greek Old Testament that referred to the Levites and the priests drawing near. It's not just by yourself in your home, drawing near to God in your heart and thinking about God. It is drawing near in the priestly service. We're being made a nation of priests for God. And we, we draw near in that priestly service. And so that's the first command. Let us draw near. It's not each of you individually draw near. It is the body of Christ, this nation of priests, approaching God together. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to God, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Together, offering the sacrifice of praise, the only sacrifice that's left for us to offer, we gather together, we approach God together, and we serve him in that priestly service together. Let us draw near. So how are we to draw near? Four things in the text. And each of these is part of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. To make us qualified to serve this way. To draw near as a new nation of priests. With a true heart. Refers to the new birth. The center of our being has been changed and subjected to the Lordship of Christ. In full assurance of faith. This is a settled trust. A confidence that we can have in the value and righteousness of Christ. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Some of you have never known what that is because you've never come face to face with your own sin. Here's a test to know whether or not this is true of you. Would you call your conscience, except for the daily work of the Holy Spirit, evil? Or do you think you're jolly well okay? Not as bad as those other people. 
And our bodies washed with pure water. This is priesthood language. See this. When you read the Old Testament and you see all of the washings that the priests had to go through, we are now washed in Christ so that we can be qualified and purified to serve as priests. And this is why I think one of the reasons why Jesus had to be baptized. He was consecrating himself to this new priesthood. He's the new high priest. And we join him through baptism to say, yes, this is us. We are the people of God. We are this nation of priests. We draw together to offer these sacrifices to him. Is this how you see your Christian life? Is this what you want out of your involvement with your church? I wonder. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast, not each of you individually, by yourselves, alone, cut off from the body, holding fast. Let us hold fast. All of us together. And to what are we holding fast? To the confession of our hope. Not your theological hobby horse. Not your ideal setting for church. Not your favorite programs. Not your culture. Not your favorite songs or your traditions. Not your favorite experiences. And not 10,000 other good things. These are not the things that we together are supposed to be holding fast to. Then to what must we hold fast? To the confession of our hope, which is Christ. That's it. If you cling tightly to any other thing, it brings massive disunity in the body of Christ. The only thing that brings unity and breaks down barriers, the kind of barriers between Jew and Gentile that we see in the New Testament, is holding fast, that that all of our energy and exertion is holding fast to Christ, the confession of our hope. In what way should we hold fast without wavering? Not wobbling, not shaky, not half-heartedly and not distractedly. How much of your spiritual life and time is spent on this very thing, holding fast to Christ? Are you striving to obtain it? Are you seeking help to get there? Can you echo with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3? Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. How or why should we do this? How or why should we hold fast to this confession of our hope? For he who promised is faithful. Amen? Paul says in one verse before the one I just read, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. The reason we can hold fast to this confession of our hope is because God is faithful, not because we are faithful. This protects you against all forms of legalism. It's not your works and your striving that connects you to Christ. It is God's faithfulness. The one making these promises for blessing and judgment is faithful. 
His word is sure and will not fail. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth its successive journeys run. Why? Because God is true. God is faithful. And he is faithful to himself and cannot break his word. This is the ground of our confidence and our godly fear that God keeps his word. So those are the first two imperatives. Let us hold let us draw near and let us hold fast. And I've been asking all along the way, is this how you view your Christian life? Is the pursuit of this the way that you see your involvement with your church family? And I truly do wonder, this is not just a rhetorical question for the sake of a sermon. This is a deep, personal, and pastoral concern for you and me and for our love for each other and our desire to have this I want you to actually have what Jesus died to give you. It's nothing less than that. The full assurance of faith. I want that for you. And I want us to obey in the way that God commands us to obey so that you can have that. Verse 24. And let us consider... How to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I don't know where you're at today in your heart. I don't know how these verses have landed on you. Maybe you're just, your arms are crossed inside your heart and you don't, you're not really interested in the pursuit of these things. Maybe you're completely discouraged. Maybe you, you see some progress in your heart and you're not sure. These commands are heavy. Let us hold fast. Let us draw near. These are big, huge. Significant, especially in the context of all it says about them. And if we were told, here's the building you got to build and not been given the foundation first to build it on, it would be impossible. And that's what chapters 1 through 10 are. And then we get these two verses, the final command. Let us consider how to stir up one another. I hope you feel and see the beauty of this command. In light of all, and because of all that has been said about Christ, because of the gospel, on the basis of Christ's work on our behalf, this is how we are commanded to live. And so fulfill the first two commands in each other's lives. How is it that we draw near? How is it that we hold fast to Christ? It's this. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Lord willing, we'll spend a few more weeks marinating in these two verses. Something I've been thinking about and dreaming about for a while. And it's not something that's only here. It's everywhere in the New Testament, especially. Just this morning in our family Bible reading, we saw the same idea again in 1 Thessalonians 3. It's there. It's everywhere. I hope you can see how significant these verses are in transforming your Christian walk. When I was growing up, we were in a family bluegrass band. If you can believe it, I played the banjo, okay? And it was super embarrassing to be in a band with your dad 
as the leader, and he listens to the sermons, so I know he's going to hear this. We joke about it. Um, it, was, it was so funny, and we were so disorganized sometimes that people thought we were doing a comedic act. That's how bad it was sometimes. So, um, But one of the songs we sang was, I've Decided to Follow Jesus. Most of you probably know this, especially if you're older. And it's a good song. But one of the verses says, Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Here's what I want to say about that verse. That's not your experience. Unless you are willing to say that everyone else in this room is not a Christian, you can't sing that verse. Though it's still true, if, not, if, if all y'all decide tomorrow that y'all aren't going to go with me and pursue Jesus, I'm still going to pursue Jesus, it's true. But let me, though I am not a songwriter, I want to give you some possibilities for, for some other verses. Though you resist me, still we will follow. Though you're exhausted, still we will follow. Though we're imperfect, still we will follow. Though different ages, still we will follow. Though not agreeing on everything, still we will follow. Though few in number, we still will follow. Though pride besets us, still we will follow. Though not my preference, still we will follow. Though it will cost me, still we will follow. Though moving slowly, still we will follow. For Christ has triumphed, yes, we will follow. Jesus has no interest in a version of Christian spirituality or maturity that leaves your brother and sister behind in the dust. He's not interested in it. Isn't that what Jesus did? He's in the presence of God, delighting in the presence of God, even being very God of God, and he leaves that to come and bring us in. That's what you should be doing with your brothers and sisters, lest us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. I want to close by giving you some questions. Food for thought. These are in your handout. And I hope, as a church body, we can simply marinate in these two verses for a few weeks. What happens in my heart when I hear these commands? What images come to mind? When, when you hear God commanding you, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works. What actually comes to mind? Do these verses accurately and honestly describe my Christian life? Why or why not? What life goals and plans and patterns of my life have become an obstacle to obedience to these commands? There are many. How different from obeying these commands are my desires for church or for worship of God? How can I begin to put serious effort and creativity into stirring one another up to love and good works? Does all the more describe my actual practice of meeting together and encouraging one another? 
Is it possible for me to obey these commands in isolation of any kind? Do I realize that I need brothers and sisters doing this for me in order to have God's best for me? How do these commands redefine my understanding of Christian love? Do I know my Christian walk should be like this? Is the pursuit of these things the way I see belonging to my church family? I wonder. Let's pray. Father, we are dependent on you in more ways than we realize. And so we ask that your spirit would move powerfully. We cannot evoke or create obedience in our heart on our own. So we ask that you would powerfully move in our hearts together. Change our minds. Change our heart. Do what you will among us for your name's sake. And I pray for those who simply can't take my word for it or haven't seen it Maybe their eyes are covered or their hearts are hardened to this truth. I ask that you would do whatever needs to take place so that they would enter in to this way of obedience, the way that Christ showed us to live. Please do so for their good, their joy, and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.